Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There's been a lot of death, unfortunately, in the summer of 2020. Many tens, hundreds of thousands of people are are dying of of COVID-19. And there's another death, unfortunately, we might have to report in this strange summer. The death of the artist, at least according to William uh, Derezowitz, uh, and of course I mangled his name, having tried to remember it beforehand. Uh, William has a new book out, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. Uh, Bill, are we really witnessing in the strange summer of 2020 the death of the artist? It's a metaphor. Um, it's a bit, it's hyperbolic. It's the title that my, uh, publishers really wanted me to use to get everybody's goddamn attention, which is part of what the book is about. What's one of the things that's happening to artists and it's happening to everybody is that they're competing in this ridiculous thing called the attention economy, where you have to jump up and down and shout and wave your arms to hope to get anybody to notice you by doing things like giving your book titles like The Death of the Artist. But I would certainly, you know what? The death of the mid-tier artist, the death of the working artist who could live a middle-class life, that's not so metaphoric. I mean, basically, before the internet came along, there were plenty of starving artists, struggling artists. If you were a full-time working artist who had established yourself just at that middle tier, you weren't a big star, but... Your peers knew your work, respected your work. Critics respected your work. You had some kind of audience, maybe some kind of institutional affiliation. You could live a decent life. You could afford decent housing, decent health care, maybe send your kids to college. That's not true anymore. That job description is a working class job right now. And being working class in America in the 21st century means being poor. I mean, the artist I talked to for this book never mind sending their kids to college. A pretty small fraction of them even had kids or felt that they could afford to have kids. So that's where we are. Yeah, I was struck by this. um, You say it's the the metaphor with the comparison with artists or contemporary artists and the old working class. One of the people you talked to for the book, Kim Deal, who's uh, quite a well-known uh, figure in popular music. She's an ex-Pixie star. Uh, she's living now in the in the Midwest, and she compares herself to an auto worker, whether it's an auto worker who's working or out of work. What other um, comparisons do you think make the the person, perhaps borrowing a term from Prince, formerly known as the artist and the person formerly known as the industrial worker? How, how else can we tie them two together? That's a good question. 
Uh, I mean, she was talking about her industry becoming obsolete. That's that was the context of that quote. Um, you know, my industry is obsolete. The world is leaving is leaving this industry by. Uh, well, what can you do about it? Um, well, we can talk about that. I mean, first of all, it's not like we're going to not have music. We just may not be able to pay musicians or may not want to pay musicians. But look, industrial workers, there's still, they're still some around, but the workforce has increasingly turned towards gig work, contract work, short-term work, part-time work. You know, the people on the left call this the precariat, you know, the precarious proletariat. And um, artists are right in the middle of that. So we have, among other things, we have labor laws that simply have not been updated for this new economy. They apply to people like... Um, industrial workers whether they're unionized or not but if you're in, in the gig economy you're not covered by any of these protections uh, including like protections against harassment or discrimination the word that i come to in the book is producer because i'm looking for a word how do we describe the artist now i reject this horrible buzz phrase creative entrepreneur that's been applied to it because I hate the word creative as, as it's used in that context. It's just this kind of Silicon Valley business buzzword. And I hate the word entrepreneur in this context. I don't necessarily hate entrepreneurs, maybe some of them, not necessarily as a class, but we're not I'm talking an about entrepreneur, Bill. Okay, and me. I love you. So, but this word entrepreneur is now being applied to people who are merely self-employed. They're not starting companies. They're not, you know, building equity in companies or hiring workers. They just don't have a job. So, but this term creative entrepreneur is being um, offered as a kind of, um, as a kind of solace. I call it sugar for the turd of gig work. You know, it, uh, it's, you know, everything's cool because you're creative and you're an entrepreneur. So, you know, then I think, well, what about worker? Yeah, artists in many ways are workers, but in many ways they're also not workers. So I settle on producer, which I think is the best term that I've come across for this kind of new economic actor. Of, like I say in the book, a free particle in the marketplace, just chasing whatever money you can for whatever work you can. Is that one of the reasons why you embrace the term non-creative, non-fiction writer to describe yourself? Should we wear that badge with pride? Should we go around when we go to our cocktail parties in Brooklyn or Portland or Berkeley and call ourselves non-creative? Well, I, I mean, that's how I describe myself. There are certainly creative writers. I mean, in that phrase, I'm, I will accept the word creative, but I, you know, I reject it for myself for the reason I already said, that it's become this word that everybody wants to claim. Why though? Why are we... It, it, we can't blame, you know, we can blame a lot of stuff on Facebook and Google and Steve Jobs and all the rest of it, but we, we can't blame them for that. Why does everybody want to be a creative? I think part of it we can blame on uh, Steve Jobs in particular, right? The whole Apple marketing, <laughs> no, the whole Apple marketing campaign, which was really, I mean, had huge cultural presence in the 90s when they were trying to sell their expensive machines and they were putting up billboards of Einstein and Kerouac and convincing everybody that they had something unique and wonderful to express. So there's that. And then there's also, I talk in the book, you know, about um, the rise of the creative class, that book by Richard Florida, but just the whole idea of creative class, which became this 
you know, this idea that it was going to save the city. So it was taken up in a very big way in urbanism and in the way cities branded themselves and they want to have film festivals and art walks and all this stuff. And it cycled into the business world, right? Um, I talk about how we used to call a certain class of workers, knowledge workers. This was sort of the new class of workers in the post-war economy who worked with knowledge rather than working on an assembly line. Basically, we've rebranded those workers as creative workers. And I just that I mean, they're really the same kinds of people, but the fact that we switched from knowledge to creative, to creativity, indicates this idea that seems, you know, and it's been taken up in academia, Schools want to teach you to be creative. For some, for all, I think for all of these reasons and maybe other reasons, creativity has become this fetish, yeah. especially in the. You you mentioned the word fetish. It's a it's a good Marxist word, or Marx loved that word. Um, and I and I think there's definitely a connection with the university. Uh, I, I came across your work originally with your marvelous book, Excellent Sheep, a New York Times bestseller. I think everyone who will be watching this will have read that book, where you point out, and you're one of the, the very first people to point this out, that the university was increasingly conformist and that kids were being taught to, to be like sheep. Is there then this connection between the cult of creativity and the sheep-like nature of education, where everyone is being taught that they need to be creative? And of course, by definition, they're not, because they're all sheep. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and and um, it's strange because I don't feel like it's really been addressed, because there's been a there's been a perception for a while. Actually, Andrew Yang, who of course is now famous for running for president, mm. uh, his first book was called uh, "Smart People Should Build Things," because his mission was to take these Ivy Leaguers, who he may value more highly than I do, but he's he's saying, look, they're all going into Wall Street consulting, medicine, law. Maybe they're going to work for Google as, co or as whatever they do at Google, but they're not, they're not, there's a, they're not really becoming entrepreneurs. That was his complaint mm. that, that, that because of the way that we're teaching them to be sheep, teaching them to be conformist box checkers, um, despite the fact, despite the fact that we say that we think creativity is so important. So. Bill, you, this book is is a really interesting read because rather than just sitting in your at your desk in Portland and writing it, you spoke to what about hundred or two hundred quote unquote creatives. Oh, you don't like that word? We'll call them creatives. No, they right? were artists. They were legitimate artists. Legitimate artists, um, filmmakers, writers, poets, graphic artists, um, and musicians. Musicians, yeah. of course, and. I thought there was something rather tragic about the book. It's a very sad book. It, maybe we're not talking about exactly, quote unquote, the death of the artist, but we're talking about the demise of the artist. And many of the people you spoke to are living lives of, um, of, of, of poverty and uh, exclusion um, and, and perhaps of deep regret. You may be a, what you call yourself, a non-creative non-fiction writer, but be creative for a moment, Bill. Yeah. What are these people like? Is there a sadness to them broadly? Are they failures? No, 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 no. So first of all, uh, yes, many of them are living on remarkably small amounts of money. 
you know, low, you know, 20,000 something dollars. Um, none of them have any regrets. Um, some of them not do. You even write about some of the regrets. They do, don't they? Um, I'm not saying that they're perfectly happy with their situation. Uh, they're frustrated. Some of them are angry. What I, I, I take it that what you meant was that some of them regret that they're doing what they're doing. Well, they're living I, in poverty. They can't sell their work. You write about in your in your in your chapter on writing that people who wanted to sell five thousand or ten thousand end up yeah. selling a hundred. They invest three years of their life in a project that um, everybody else yeah, yeah. ignores. They they have to move homes. They can barely afford to feed themselves. This is a sad story. But I'm but but I mean look, I understand why you say that. And I mean, I'm certainly painting a realistic picture that's not a happy picture. But I mean, I make a point of, of sort of pausing the, the argument for a couple of pages and answering exactly the question you ask, what are these people like? I mean, I've always had a lot of respect for artists. I, you know, I was an English professor and a literary critic. So I mean, art has been like a very big part of my life. I didn't really understand what it takes to be an artist until I talk to so many of them. They are tough, resilient, um, focused, incredibly hardworking, resourceful, uh, creative about their lives, about their careers, not just about their work. I mean, so what I'm saying is that it's really tough for them. I didn't talk to a single person who felt defeated. It's true. I did talk to uh, some people who were, who were, um, leaving the arts to start another career. So that's true. But, but insofar as people are staying, um, they have this tremendous optimism and resilience and sense of possibility that I think goes along with being an artist. So they're real Americans in the, the way in which uh, some Americans like to think of themselves. You know, that sounds different when you say it in a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure what you mean. Well, that they're, yeah, that they, 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 yeah, that they have a vision and that they will work for it, even if it kills them. Look, this is why, also, why we're better than Europe, because you guys actually, <laughs> in some ways, like you guys, really support the arts. I didn't realize that actually, it's sixty-three times as much. There's sixty-three times as much public support for the arts in the EU as there is in America by GDP percentage, but. I mean, maybe some people would disagree, but where does where is most of the really exciting art come from in the last two decades? I mean, life sucks in America, but there is this spirit of, you know, ambition. Ambition is not a dirty word in America. And spirit of endless second chances, which means that people will pick themselves up and try again until they either die and never succeed or succeed. And you're saying that doesn't exist in Europe? I don't know what exists in Europe. Um, what do you think? Does it exist in Europe? Uh, well, I live in Berkeley, California, so I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. as, well, that's practically any, any, any more equipped. That's right. practically any, a little bit of Europe in America. I'm any more or less equipped than you to comment on European art versus American art. Bill, let me ask you a really stupid question that I'm sure everyone's asking you on this book. Every generation, in fact, every five or 10 years, there's a book like this. I even wrote one myself in 2007. Um, 
And every generation, somehow the artists, as you suggest, they're resilient, they get second, third, fourth jobs, they become part of the precariat, they drive Uber cars, they do this or that, but they eventually come out with their books and their songs and their movies. And some of them are enormously talented and they make careers out of it. Most of them don't as they never have done in the past. And we're always gonna have culture. Am I being really boring here? Isn't there some truth to that? There is some truth to that. And I think it's, that's exactly why this problem is so hard to see because there's an endless stream of culture. I mean, much, much more than ever because so many more people are doing it than ever. But we don't see what we're not getting. Um, we don't see the art that isn't getting made. And we don't see how many, how just how lethal it is for young artists now. We don't see the talents that are being discouraged. And a couple of other things. Um, I don't have hard numbers on this, but a lot of people told me in a lot of different fields that the arts are becoming more and more a rich kid's game. Mm. I mean, to a certain extent, they've always been because, because they're so hard. But more and more, if you don't have family money, and of course, this also has a racial ethnic angle in, in the U.S. and in other countries, right? Because, well, family wealth also tends to skew white. So that's one thing. Who's making culture? Mm. And then also, and I have a long chapter where I talk about this, I try not to get into aesthetics, but I think it needs to be confronted. Is the nature of art changing? when things need to make an instantaneous impact on the internet, when people are skipping and skimming and clicking, does art start to look different? Does popular music gravitate towards pop and EDM and away from the crafts of musicianship and songwriting, as people have uh, said to me? Hollywood, we know, is all about spandex and blockbusters. Um, writing, you know, just, just yesterday, a young writer wrote to me and said, you know, I post my stuff on Medium, but it seems like everything on Medium sort of sounds the same. It's like everyone's trying to write the thing that's supposed to look good on Medium. So there's that. Might it just be the passing of the American century? Uh, you know, good movies <laughs> are still being made. Uh, the, the, last, uh, the, you know, the last great film was probably a Korean one, which won the Oscar. Um, perhaps we're, 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 we're too busy navel-gazing in the U.S., particularly given what you accurately describe as the death of the American middle class, which extends from industry to culture. As you suggested, it's not happening elsewhere. It's not happening in Europe. It's not happening in East Asia, and it's an American problem. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's true that in Europe in particular, because of this enormous amount of public arts funding, there's a cushion. But this is fundamentally about the Internet, and the internet is everywhere. I was a little surprised, but a few months ago, long before the book came out, we already had two translation deals. One was from China and one was from Russia. So I think, and even the, some of the changes in the economy that we've been talking about, the precariat, I mean, they talk about that in the UK. Um, it may be worse here, and again, because we also don't have a social, you know, much of a social welfare system, a, a social safety net, but I think, um, I think we're talking about things that are broadly, it's just like my last book, right? Excellent Cheap, it was called The Miseducation of the American Elite. And the first thing I learned after I published it was, hey, this is happening in Korea, Japan, Singapore, Brazil, Europe. So we may be the first and worst, but it's not an American problem. 
Finally, Bill, how do we fix it? You, know, you have a, a good final chapter where you talk about some very concrete steps to bring the, the artist back from death, at least put, it, put, put him or her on life support. Well, this is not an easy problem to answer. I'm, or certainly the answers are easy to give, but not easy to execute. And you may have more insight into this than I do. I mean, so much of the problem here is the incredible market power of the tech monopolies. You know, every year, tens of billions of dollars that should go to creators are going to them with very little accountability. Uh, it's not that the money's disappeared. It's not that free music has really been demonetized. It's just that the money's going to the people who are counting the clicks. So we need to break up the big tech monopoly so they don't have that level of power. And then we need, this is where, this is the hard part, the really hard part, we need to address these systemic inequalities in the economy, right? We need to take care of gig workers. We need to do something about housing costs and healthcare costs and education costs. You can't send your kid to college? Well, college should be free as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah. And in the meantime, you can pay for that goddamn music instead of stealing it. And are you optimistic? You don't look optimistic, Bill. <laughs> no, I'm Jewish. I'm not optimistic. Um, <laughs> Jews aren't optimists. They're not real Americans. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not optimistic, but I'm more hopeful than I've been in a while. Um, I have lived through a succession of events that have been touted as the dawn of a new progressive era. Election of Barack Obama, Occupy Wall Street. Bill de Blasio, believe it or not, back then. And I knew at the time that it was, you know, let's wait a few years until we're into the new progressive era before we declare that one has started. I think this time may be different because it really is a mass movement that's moving into electoral politics. When you yeah. see these kinds of people getting nominated for Congress, we might actually be getting somewhere. Do you have any kids? I don't have any kids. But if you it's did, let's say you had a 20-year-old daughter who fancied themselves as a filmmaker or a writer um, or a musician, what would you say to them? You know, right. I mean, obviously, I don't know what I would really say if they were my kid. I would probably, you know, I mean, parents, I don't know if you're a parent. Don't tell me. I am, Parents are horrible. Parents are, uh, well, you know, I mean, I, parents are necessary. I wrote my last book, I mean, right, until we have Petri dishes. I wrote my last book, I mean, in some ways, my last book was about how much parents screw their kids up, the kids who get pushed towards the Ivy League. Um, I, one of the things that so many of my artist interviewees told me was how much their parents discouraged them, how much their schools discouraged them, how little support they got. At the same time, I'm saying this is a really hard road you may need to drop out when you're 35. So here's what I've come to with that. I would say if you really, really have a calling for this, you feel like you will be bitter and regretful for the rest of your life. If you don't do it, then you owe yourself to give it a shot. 20-year-old artist, 25-year-old artist. Keep your eyes open. Know that by the time you hit your 30s, mid-30s, you may need to uh, go to plan B. That's what I would say. Give it a shot, but know that you might need to give it up. I think that's wise. Of course, it's easier said than done. Um, finally, Bill, uh, your, your new book, The Death of the Artist, is, is as, as always with you, provocative, 
very well written, not creative, of course, but well written <laughs> and relevant for our weird time, for our weird summer of 2020. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to the death of the artist? You used to teach literature at Yale, so you know a lot about books. Yeah, um, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to um, recommend literature, although there's lots of great literature out there. But um, there's a great book that was written by a 28 year old called Kids These Days. Do you know it by Malcolm Harris? Kids These Days, no. Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. He says, listen, older people, this is why millennials are the way they are, because we've grown up in this economy where we've had to be building our human capital our whole lives. It's kind of the same topic from a different angle. It's the same topic as both of my last two books. So Kids These Days by uh, Malcolm Harris. And then I discovered the art critic Dave Hickey, you know, air guitar, and he's got one called Pirates and Farmers. I mean, he's been around for like 50 years. He's an amazing writer, mind. He's funny. He's the opposite of a snob. He writes about everything. Um, every time I read, everything I read by him, I think the only thing I don't like about this is that I didn't write it myself. Dave Hickey. Uh no European writers, Bill. European writers. I'm teasing you. You said there's no culture in Europe. I know. I love Ferrante. I hate Knazgard. How about that? You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.